Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the world, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, walking wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, good morning, and again, I echo uh, Happy Mother's Day. Lord for mothers, especially my mom and my wife. And, um, sorry for the heat, sorry we couldn't provide y'all with a cool environment, but um, I obviously dressed for it. Um, and so I got my shorts on, try to keep myself cool, and got my sweat rag always, as always. Um, and I thought because of Mother's Day, because of the heat, I'd share a funny story with y'all. Um, this was a while back, one time after I had preached, my mom came up to me afterwards and was like, you know, just typical mom, like encouraging, good job kind of comments. But then she said, there's one thing that kind of bugged me. I was like, oh, what was that? Like, did I say something controversial? Like, what? And it was basically, apparently when I would go to wipe my sweat, I would, like, dab it. And I wasn't wiping my whole face. So I was leaving sweat, and, like, I was, it was dripping from my nose. And apparently that was, I need to wipe my whole face to get all the sweat off. So I've tried to make that a habit. Unfortunately, y'all probably see a lot of sweat today. Um, but but let's go ahead and just go into prayer, and then we'll get started. So let's pray. God, thank you for the heat. Confess that my flesh is not thankful for it. And, um, but the, the reality is, is that you and your your goodness and your love, that you reveal truth to us all the time through all areas of life. And even something like this, not having AC, we were reminded of of eternal truths. Just as the heat causes our body to get tired and hot and needs water for hydration, we're reminded that our, our spirits, our souls, uh, without Christ, are, are hot and are thirsty and are, are dehydrated. And that you, Jesus, are the, are the, uh, the living water that quenches that thirst. So thank you that we have your word, that it is a uh, a refreshing, cool spring of water, and that we can drink it this morning. I pray that it would bring refreshment to us and also invigorate us. I pray that you would glorify yourself this morning. You'd make all of us very little, and that we would grow in our love for you, Father. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, I don't know if y'all realized it, but we are nearing the end of our Colossians series, which is pretty crazy, because we are, we started this back in January, it feels like yesterday that we started, but next week is going to be our last sermon in this series, um, and so we, we titled it Lord of All, because a lot of Colossians is focused on uh, Christ being supreme, it's, it's focused on his supremacy and his preeminence, and uh, so we've, we've seen that he is Lord over all of creation, everything, he's Lord over it. And then these last few weeks, we've, we've seen that Paul has shifted to say, okay, so if Jesus is Lord, well, then this is what it means for us. He said in the verse 17 of chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. If he's Lord of your life, then he should rule over every aspect 
of your life. And then Paul kind of goes through and gave us concrete examples of that, where if he's Lord of, of Lord of all, then here's what it looks like for your marriage and your relationship between husband and wife. If he's Lord of all, then here's how it impacts the home and the parent-child relationship. If he's Lord of all, then here's how it should impact your work, your labor. And as Matt reminded us last week, that um, when we work heartily unto the Lord, that that's actually an opportunity for us to bear a testimony to the world. If you remember, Matt said, um, if you have someone who's claiming to be a believer, but their work ethic is not very good, they're lousy at their job, they're not even doing their job, that's going to reflect poorly on Christianity, right? So when we work heartily unto the Lord, even if our boss is not the greatest person in the world, if we work heartily unto the Lord, it reflects well <coughs> on Christianity. And then, in these verses, 2 through 6, um, we see Paul shift to, so if, Lord, if Jesus is Lord of all, here's how it impacts your relationship with outsiders. Here's how it impacts your interaction with them. And in these verses, we see him paint a picture of evangelism. He starts with himself in leadership, and then he turns to the church as a whole. But he's describing what we would call evangelism, going out and proclaiming the word to the world. So it's a call to evangelize. The sermon I titled it, A Call to Reach, because if you are familiar with our mission statement, we say that Midlands exists to reach people with the gospel, build them as the church, and send them into the world for the glory of God. And so we shorten that by saying reach, build, sin, and that's what we're talking about. Um, and Matt's mentioned this before, but we as leaders, we like to at times look at our church and say, all right, how are we as a church? Are we healthy? What can we be improving upon? And it's helpful to use those three categories to sort of kind of grade how we are. And, you know, obviously we're not perfect and we can always be improving. But when we look at it, we think, okay, we'll build. We feel like we have a pretty strong foundation for that. We're actually a pretty healthy church when it comes to building. Cindy, you know, we're a small church plant. We've gone through some tumultuous stuff. But we've actually, we're laying a good foundation for that. We've actually got people out on the mission field and we're supporting them. We've got people locally that we support that are doing things. But the reaching piece, I think we would, our leadership would agree that we actually aren't doing that so well. Um, and this sermon is not intended for, it's intended for me to say, shame on you, Midlands Church, you're not reaching. This is me as one of the leaders saying, we're sorry, we've done a poor job of leading y'all in reaching the community, reaching our neighbors with the gospel. But we say that this is an important thing, but this is the first thing we should be doing in our mission statement. And so my hope and prayer for this sermon is that it kickstarts some conversations and uh, it, it helps stir us up to say, all right, we need to take this seriously. How do I go out into my community? How do I reach my neighbors with the gospel? So this sermon is a call to myself. It's a call to our leaders. It is a call to the saints at Midlands Church to reach people with the gospel. Uh, there's going to be five points uh, in this sermon, and there's going to be a bunch of sub-points with each one. So we're just going to dive right in. And point number one is this. No one is exempt, part A. So point one, no one is exempt, part A. Uh, starting in verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
I mentioned it earlier, but we see here a picture of evangelism. And Paul starts with himself. He's saying, pray. He's saying to the church in Colossae, pray for me and the leaders that we have opportunities to evangelize. And I get that from verse 3 where he says that God may open to us a door for the word. Um, we see this language in other places in Scripture. Um, Acts 14, 27, we're told that Paul and the disciples gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9, Paul tells the Corinthians he's going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Then in 2 Corinthians 2, 12, Paul speaking and says... When he arrived in Troas to preach the gospel, the Lord had opened a door for him. So this opening of a door is something that the Lord does where it allows his word to go forth and go out to the outsiders, to those who are not in the faith or not in the church. It's an opportunity for us to declare the word and for those to hear it and repent. Then in verses 5 and 6, Paul shifts the attention to the Colossians church. So he's been talking about himself, praying that this door would open for us. And then in 5, he says, walk in wisdom towards the outsiders. So he shifts the attention to the church. But it's not just to the Colossian church. It's to the church. It's the global church, the big C church. It's to first century Christians. It's to us here at Midlands Church. And he's describing... He's basically saying, walk in wisdom towards them, and what that looks like is what I just described. Seek out opportunities to answer their questions. Be ready for when the door opens that you can communicate truth to your neighbors. So point number one is this. No one is exempt from the call of evangelism. If you are a follower of Christ, then you are called to proclaim and share the gospel with others. We are called to make disciples. And there's two important truths regarding this point that we see here in these verses. The first is this. Your status does not exempt you from this call. So we have Paul and the church leaders, and we see that they are actively engaging in evangelism. They don't say, well, we're big time. You know, we're really important people. We've got important things to do. We don't have time to take part in evangelism. So you handle that. You, you lower people on the totem pole in the church. You take care of that for us. They're engaged in it. On the flip side, they don't say to the church in Colossae, or Colossae that, uh, hey, we're the apostles and it's our job to evangelize. So you just send us money, you just pray for us, and we'll take care of the evangelism. No, it's from the top to the bottom. We are all to be engaged in evangelism. No one is exempt, and your status doesn't exempt you. And the second thing we see is your circumstances do not exempt you. If anyone had a compelling argument that their circumstances should exempt, exempt them, if anyone had any reason to say, hey, I'm excused from this, it would be Paul. I think it's um, 2 Corinthians 9 or 11 where Paul spells out what his ministry has looked like and all the things he's endured. He's beaten, he's whipped, he's lashed, he's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he's imprisoned multiple times. He lists all these dangers that he's faced. But he's not saying, hey, I faced all this and so I'm exempt. My circumstances have been hard, so I get to sit out. I get to call this one out. No, he's engaged in it despite his circumstances. Likewise, there's no, there's no circumstance that exempts you or me from this call of evangelism. 
whether in rich or poor, sickness or health, joy or sorrow, better or worse, good times or bad times, whether you're young or you're old, whether you're well-rested or you're exhausted, whether you're just getting started in this life or you're about to retire, we are all called to participate in evangelism. So our circumstances do not exempt us. So point one, no one is exempt from evangelism, part A. Point two is going to be part B. No one is exempt from evangelism. Just like there's no Christian that's exempt from the call to evangelize, there's not a single person in the history of the world who is exempt from us pursuing them with the gospel. Verse 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. This word outsider means non-believers. Paul uses it in other places, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, where he talks about the outsiders, those that are outside the church. They're not believers. So we're to walk in wisdom towards the believers. The Great Commission affirms this. Jesus didn't say, go and make disciples of the people you're closest to and you're comfortable with. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations, starting your inner circle and then spread out to the ends of the earth. And those outsiders, they look different than us, don't they? They talk different, they act different, they think different. That's where this starts to get a little difficult, right? That neighbor across the street who doesn't look like you, that coworker that you have a really hard time connecting with, that family member that you see at family reunions who has a really strong personality and is very opinionated and you find that you never agree with them on things, those people are not exempt. If God is placing them in our path, then we are to seek out opportunities to speak truth to them or to make the best use of our time with them. So no one is exempt from evangelism, meaning Christians are not exempt from the call to evangelize. There's no one that is exempt from our pursuit of evangelizing them. The third point is this. Words are necessary. Evangelism requires words. I mentioned it earlier about uh, last week's sermon with labor and how our labor can serve as a testimony, can bear a testimony to the world. And if we're not careful, we like to stop there, right? There's that quote that's wrongly attributed to him, but there's the quote that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. The idea is I can live in such a godly way that people, I don't have to say anything, they can just look at the way I live and they'll somehow put all the puzzle pieces together and come to the conclusion of, oh, I need Jesus. But there's that temptation to say, well, if I just live a good life, I don't actually have to speak to someone. I don't have to do the uncomfortable thing of speaking truth to them and at some point saying something that's going to offend them because I'm telling them that they're worshiping an idol. You know, I just I want to avoid that if I can. But evangelism requires words. Think about Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing the word of God. It doesn't say faith comes by seeing someone live out a godly lifestyle. We saw it in these verses. Um, we see it five times where it, it addresses our speech. Um, towards the end of verse 3, Paul saying to declare. Um, then in verse 4, to make it clear. So that declaration wants to make clear how I ought to speak. Verse 6, let your speech be gracious. And at the end, how you answer each person. So within these few verses, it addresses our speech repeatedly. 
our words are necessary. Evangelism requires words, and it involves us talking to the outsiders. And when it comes to our words, there's three really important things that we need to be mindful of that we see here in this text. And if we, if we only do one of these, or we do two of the three, we're going to end up evangelizing very poorly. Uh, the three things we see are this. Uh, first, in verse 4, he says, which is how I ought to speak. That ought to speak can be translated as, I am bound, it's by necessity, that I speak this way. So Paul was expressing this sense of duty. You know, I'm required to do this. I must do this. And I think when we start talking about duty, we all get a little uncomfortable, don't we? It's this punishment versus privilege mentality. Like, what's your gut reaction when you hear, I must, I ought, I'm bound, it's necessary for me to speak? Is your response this one of punishment? Like, there's another thing I have to add to my list of things to do? Or is it a sense of privilege? Like, I recognize the amazing gift I've received through Jesus, and so I get to participate in this this opportunity of spreading the gospel and sharing it with other people and it's I have to do this like if I don't I'm not going to experience this great joy um, John Piper kind of addresses this this sense of duty he uh, he quotes Edward John Carnell who said suppose a man asks must I kiss my wife goodnight and Carnell gives the answer yes but not that kind of must and then he, John Piper elaborates on that. He says, The man who asks this question misunderstands the nature of duty. He thinks that duty only relates to the external behavior of kissing, and that if he kisses his wife, he has done his duty. But Carnell's point is that Christian duty is deeper than physical acts. Our duty includes not only the external physical acts that are appropriate and virtuous, but also a right heart or a right disposition or a right set of affections and emotions. This is the important part. So yes, it's a man's duty to kiss his wife, but that includes the duty of feeling, of affection for his wife. So we see here that our words are necessary, but not in the check it off the list kind of sense. It's necessary in that out of our love for Jesus, we want to demonstrate and prove our love for Jesus by telling people about our love for Jesus. The second point about our words is this knowledge. We need to know what we believe in order to know how to communicate it. Verse 3, Paul talks about this mystery of Christ. We've seen this before in Colossians, this mystery idea. But mystery is not used the way that we would use it in English. It's not this unsolvable mystery that no one will ever get an answer to. It's like I grew up watching unsolved mysteries and always like the UFO and the Bigfoot sighting stories. But the purpose of that show was, here's this claim, that you can't prove it, you can't disprove it, it's, it's unsolvable, it's a mystery. But that's not what the word mystery means here. It, it's referring to God's secret plan. And throughout the Old Testament, God is hinting at this secret plan that he has, but he doesn't fully reveal it. But then in the New Testament, through Jesus, that plan is finally revealed. And we see that the secret, that the mystery, is Jesus. It's that salvation is made available to the world through Jesus. So that is the mystery. But then in verse 4, what did Paul say? Remember he asked the Colossians to pray for something? 
He said, pray that I make it clear. And that word clear actually means reveal. So he's saying, pray that I reveal this mystery to others. Now, let's think this through. Paul, this brilliant mind, one of the leading Jews of his time before he's converted, writes the majority of the New Testament. Peter says of Paul, some of his writings are hard to understand. If he's concerned about trying to make it clear, if he's concerned about wanting to be able to properly reveal this mystery, then we need to be concerned about that too because we are not like Paul. So if, if he's concerned about it, then I need to be concerned about it. I want, to, I want my words to be clear. And the only way that I can do that is if I know these words. If I'm going through life like this, I'm not going to be able to communicate the truth to people. If we do that, we're going to end up with the Jesus loves me and that's all I know theology, right? We need these words to be able to properly communicate to people. We need these words to be able to fulfill what verse 6 says, answer each person. Know how to answer each person. You need these words. You need to be studying of these words. We need to be storing these words in our hearts so we know how to give a defense of the gospel, know how to answer each person. Now, the Spirit is the one who ultimately, of course, draws the person to repentance. But for whatever reason, it pleased God to design it for us to be the bearers of his, of his word. Of, we are the ones to go throughout the world and to declare it. <clears throat> so we need to know this word. All right, our third point about our words is this, personalized. Our words must be personalized. In verse 6, we see that our speech should be gracious, seasoned with salt, and how to answer each person. So this verse signals to us that we're going to interact with a lot of different people. We're going uh, to come into contact with people who have all sorts of baggage, all sorts of opinions, and different questions, and they're going to process things differently. So we see here that evangelism is not cookie-cutter. So what seemed to work with this person over here and what seemed to resonate with this person may not work with this person over here. So our words need to be personalized. As we are in conversation with individual people, we need to individualize and personalize those words so that they will be, un or that they will be intelligible. If we don't, the risk we run is that our words become unintelligible. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. <clears throat> A farmer one day, after he had listened to a simple sermon, which was the very opposite of what he generally heard, exclaimed, O oh Lord, we bless you that the food was put into a low crib today so that your sheep could reach it. Some brothers put the food up so high that the poor sheep cannot possibly feed upon it. I have thought as I have listened to our eloquent friends that they imagine that our Lord said, feed my giraffes. None but giraffes could reach the food when placed in so lofty a rack. But Christ says, feed my sheep. Place the food among them. Put it close to them. We need to know who we are talking to in order to know how to talk to them. If we're not careful, if we don't do that, if we're not careful, we end up putting the food up here. If we're thinking I'm talking to a giraffe and I put the food up here, but I'm talking to a sheep, that's not going to do them any good. 
So our words need to be personalized. We need to meet people where they are. And Joe Bailey, in his book, I Love to Tell the Story, he recalls hearing this illustration, uh, which was this. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the charisma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? I like that. And then Joe Bailey goes on to say, theology isn't wrong. We need deep thinkers who can explain the ramifications of our faith. But such complexity of ideas belongs in a seminary classroom, not on the hillside where Jesus taught multitudes or in the room where I teach my Sunday school class. Jesus was profound, but simple in expression. We need to be willing to meet people where they are and offer them intelligible words. The only way we can meet people where they are is if we know where they are, if we know where to meet them. I'll give you all an example, more practical example. So I like sarcasm. I speak sarcasm. I would say that I'm kind of fluent in it. My wife is not. She does not like sarcasm. She does not appreciate it. And it's taken me many years and many silly arguments that were started by me because I was sarcastic to her to learn that she doesn't like it. So I've had to learn I talk to her differently than I would my buddy. So if I want to encourage my wife, I would say, Vanessa, you are so good at that. I'm so proud of you. You know, you're, you did so well at that. If I'm talking to my buddy, I'm going to say something like, you didn't screw that up. I thought you would, but you didn't do half bad. You know, I'm going to talk to them differently. But it's one thing to know how to talk to your wife or your, your husband or your children or your close friends and family. It's another thing to know how to talk to outsiders, the people that look different, that talk different, that act different, that think different. How do I talk to them in such a way that my words resonate with them and they actually understand, you know, this is what he meant? I had the opportunity recently to sit in a, a discussion group with local pastors discussing how can our churches get, get better at cross-cultural ministry. You know, if you look around, our church is predominantly white. So how do we, Midlands Church, reach other races, other cultures in such a way that they would feel welcomed and won't actually come and get plugged in? And the guy that was leading the discussion is a, a local pastor, and he's African-American. And he was saying, what I'm saying to y'all I would make the same points, I would draw the same conclusions if I was talking to a room full of black guys, but I would say it completely different. He says, you know, my, my body language, the words I use, the illustrations I use would be completely different if I was talking to them. But since he was talking to a room full of mostly white guys, he was speaking to us a different way. But he knew us and he knew, all right, this is how I, I speak so that they understand what I'm saying. He made the point if one of his black pastor friends came in and started saying these same words, he said, we might be offended. Might be, oh, man, this guy's angry at us. And, but he's saying, he's actually making the same point. We have to know who we are talking to um, in order to actually communicate them, to them in such a way that they understand. Um, in cross-cultural ministry and missions work, it's always advised that you immerse yourself in the culture that you're trying to reach. For example, Justin and Joni, uh, they are, Lord willing, preparing to go to Bulgaria to serve over there. They're not going to go over there and try to force their American ways on the Bulgarians, are they? They're going to go in, they're going to learn the language, they're going to learn the customs and the traditions and the culture so that, Lord willing, they can make 
meaningful relationships and reach them with the gospel. So basically, to reach the outsider, you need to be willing to go and be the outsider, join them, become one with them. And Paul affirms that, 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all men. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the weak, I became weak. Jesus himself did this, didn't he? He came into this world, took on flesh and bones like us. We were the outsiders. He came, joined us. And then what did the Pharisees accuse him of all the time? That he was friends with the tax collectors and the sinners, that he was associating with the outsiders. Our words need to be gracious and seasoned with salt. What might be salty to one person may not be salty enough to the other. What may be received as gracious by one person may be received as cold and calloused by the other. But the only way you're going to know how to properly season it, how much salt do I need to add, how gracious, how are they going to receive this as gracious, is if you know the person you're talking to. We need to be learners of those we come in contact with, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, so that we can know how to meet them. And that means you got to get out of your house. you got to go meet that neighbor. you got to get involved in their life. Find out their likes, their dislikes. Get plugged in to their life so that you can build a meaningful friendship, not just so you can have a new friend, but so that you can reach them with the gospel. Um, point four is dependence. In evangelism, our posture must be one of dependence on God. Throughout these verses, we see how uh, desperately and entirely dependent we need to be on God. Verse 3, Paul saying, Pray for me that the Lord may open a door to us for the word. So who opens the door? It's God. He's not saying, hey, send me money. He's not saying, hey, pray that I can get out of jail so that I can open the door. He's saying, despite my chains, pray that God opens the door. It's the Lord who opens doors. The next thing he asks them to pray for, that I may make it clear, that my words would be clear. It's God who makes our words clear. It's God who gives understanding. You can give the most eloquent gospel presentation. Excuse me. You can give the most eloquent gospel presentation, but it's at the end of the day, it's the Lord who's going to allow that person to have understanding or not. And at the same time, take comfort in knowing that because it's God, you can fumble and bumble your way through that gospel presentation. But if the Lord wants to draw that person, he's going to make those words clear and he's going to give understanding. Then verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. I can't manufacture wisdom. You can't generate it. God is the giver of wisdom. And James says that God will give that wisdom graciously if we ask for it. So in order to walk in wisdom toward the outsider, we need to be dependent on God for him to give us that wisdom. So in evangelism, our posture needs to be that of dependence on God. And then our fifth and final point is prayer. Evangelism is sustained by prayer. There's four things that I want to quickly note about uh, our prayer and what we should be mindful of with it. 
uh, starting in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. So our prayer should be steadfast. Other translations say devote yourselves to prayer. This, it, it brings to mind that uh, the verse about praying without ceasing. And that reminds me of a Joel Beakey story. Uh, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, he would meet once a month with pastors, and they would spend time discussing in depth a theological issue. And one time they were discussing this concept of what does it mean to pray without ceasing? And apparently, as the story goes, they hadn't reached a satisfactory answer. And so a maid was coming into the room to serve them their food. And one of the pastors just kind of casually said to the maid, hey, do you know what Paul means here? And her response was, of course, it's quite simple, sir. When I get dressed in the morning, I ask God to clothe me with righteousness. When I serve you bread, I ask that Jesus might be my bread of life. When I dust the furniture, I ask that the filth might be taken out of my heart. And when I set your drink before you, I ask that Jesus might be the water of life. I just kind of pray my way through the day like that. That's what being steadfast in prayer looks like. It's just praying your way through the day. As things come up, we're lifting it up to God in prayer. Second thing is we need to be watchful in our prayer. So continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. In order to remain steadfast in our prayer, we must be watchful in the midst of it. So we need to be alert. We need to be awake. We need to be aware of what's going on so that we can be adjusting our prayers to, to match and reflect the circumstances that are around us. If we're not watchful, we run the risk of falling asleep just like the disciples did in the garden when Christ said, stay up with me and pray. And yet three times they fell asleep. Third, our prayers should be filled with thanksgiving. We are a people who have much to be thankful for, so our prayers should be filled with much thanksgiving. And when we fill our prayers with thanksgiving, we protect ourselves from discouragement. We're reminding ourselves this is how God has been good and faithful. So even though right now I can't see it, here's all the ways he's been good and faithful to me before. But we also protect ourselves from praying selfish and self-centered prayers. When we're lifting up prayers of thanksgiving, we're not praying God, do this for me. God, why didn't you do that for me? And praying selfless prayers is a good thing because the fourth thing we see is that our prayers should be um, prayers for others. Verse 3, Paul is asking them to pray for us. So we should be regularly praying for other believers. And specifically here, when it comes to evangelism, we should be praying for those who are out evangelizing, who are out on the front line. John Piper uh, describes it this way. He says, people who are going out to evangelize, it's like they're stormtroopers crossing into enemy territory, and they're trying to bring back captives, and they desperately need our prayers. So we need to be praying for our pastors, the leaders in our church, the people that work in ministries, the missionaries that are serving overseas are here. Your friend who is actively evangelizing their coworker, <clears throat> And when you are preparing across that enemy line, when you're about to engage in those conversations, you need to shoot up a flare. Let us know so that we can be praying for you as well. We need to regularly pray for each other as we go about the good work of proclaiming the good news. <clears throat> so we're going to transition to communion now. And, um, I wanted to share with y'all, there were three things that, as I've been preparing this sermon, 
sorry. Uh, As I've been preparing this sermon, there have been three things that I've been praying for all of us that the Lord might do through this sermon. And the first was that he would convict us, that there would be conviction, that as we hear and are reminded of this call, that Jesus is Lord of all, and this is how it impacts how we interact with the outsider, that we are to be engaged in evangelism, that we'd be convicted of that and remember, yep, I need to do that. The second thing I've been praying is that we would feel an overwhelming sense of inadequacy, that as I've gone through each of these points, your reaction's not, yeah, I'm doing that. Well, yeah, that's easy. But it's more this, oh, gosh, that's hard. No, I've not been doing that, and that's even more difficult. I want us to feel the weight of our inadequacy because that's a good place to be. Um, when we're in that place, it's easier to remember God is capable of doing this. It's through the finished work of his son and the power of his spirit that God can have his word go forth and draw people to repentance. And so the third thing I was praying is that we would be reminded of the supremacy of Christ. You remember in the Great Commission, he doesn't start by saying, go and make disciples. What does he start with? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples. He's saying, I have all the authority, all the power, so whatever I want, I'm going to get it. There's nothing that can stop me from getting it. So I want disciples, and I want you to go get them so you have nothing to fear. You can go out confidently and engage in evangelism and know that if I'm for you, then no one can be against you. No one can stop you. Now, as, as, if you're a believer, the communion table is open to you. And I just want to encourage you and ask that as you approach the table, approach it in that brokenness, approach it in that conviction, approach it in those inadequacies, but also approach it in confidence of what Christ has done. And in between that time of taking communion and before we sing, during that reflection time, I want to ask that you pray, like seriously pray, God, who are those people in my life that you keep dropping in front of me, that you keep putting them in my path that I've not been really actively pursuing? And how can I immerse myself in their life so that I can, might have an opportunity when the door opens to present the gospel to them? So pray about that. And then also pray, Lord, well, next week, would you let there be a new face around the table with us? And the week after that, would there be another face? We got for that, another face. By the end of this summer, we're looking out saying, wow, look at all these people that the Lord has been reaching. Not so, yeah, we can get more people in here and make this room more hot, but look at what the work the Lord is doing, and isn't that incredible? Now, if you're not a believer, please know that the table is not open to you, and that's not me just trying to be mean. That's, this is a family meal for believers and um, family meal so but I want to want to challenge you by mentioning like throughout this sermon I've been referring to the non-believer as the outsider and that's what scripture calls them and the reason is because if if you're not in Christ you're outside of Christ and what it means to be inside Christ is not that you're in some secret special club where you get to learn a handshake it's we get to be spared the wrath of God we get to spend eternity in the presence of God but if you are outside of Christ, you are going to be held accountable for, your, for all your actions, all your deeds. And so, and you will not be spared that wrath. You will endure for eternity the wrath and punishment of God. And I don't say that to scare you and get you to you know, sign up and become a Christian. I say that to rattle your cage. 
I hope to rattle your cage that you stop and go, okay, life's not about just working hard so I can play hard. Um, what's going to happen to me when I die? That's what I hope is going through your mind right now. Would y'all join me in prayer? God, thank you for your word and that we have the special opportunity and privilege to go and proclaim it. Lord, this world is thirsty. They are crying for answers. So I pray that we would confidently go forth and, and declare your truth and that through our declaration that you would reveal Christ to them. But thank you that you sent your son to spare us, uh, your wrath. And I pray that Midlands Church would not back down from that claim, not back down from that truth, but we would boldly and yet lovingly uh, proclaim this news and that you would start a revival in this city. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.